Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. Hey, we're here today with Elliot Schrafer talking about teenage sexuality. Elliot is a New York Times bestselling author. He has been a finalist twice for the National Book Award in Young People's Literature. Elliot's newest book is called Queer Ducks and Other Animals, The Natural World of Animal Sexuality. And we're going to be talking about all kinds of really fascinating sexual behavior from the animal kingdom. And we're going to be looking at, we're getting into some really interesting facts about a number of different kinds of animals that I didn't know before. And we're going to talk specifically about how you can use this information to have discussions with your teenager about sexual behavior, sexual identity, and how to really open the floor in your home, regardless of what you think your teenager's sexual identity might be and how the vast amount of sexual behavior in the animal kingdom can be a great jumping off point to have conversations in your own home. I think it's going to be interesting, fun, and hopefully a really helpful episode here. So looking forward to getting into all that and really a lot more as well to unpack here. So Elliot, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Talk to me about this new book you have coming out. It's a really interesting uh, and unique topic. How did you come up with this idea and end up turning this into a book? I've been writing uh, YA fiction for a long time, but I'm also getting a master's in animal studies at NYU uh, part-time. And so in the coursework, we had a lot of visiting scholars come through and they talk about, you know, usually biologists or specialists in a species. And when they were talking about their individual species, they would frequently mention that dolphins or the geckos or or what have you would exhibit same-sex sexual behavior. But there was just like within the animal was their expertise. And I realized like, what is going on here? Because from the evolutionary biology point of view, the assumption would be that that's actually kind of an evolutionary dead end, right? Yeah, yeah. Because if an animal pairs off with an animal of the same sex, they're not producing offspring. So their genetic pool doesn't continue into the next generation. So I wanted to read more about it. So I was looking for a work that actually looked at the reasons for this and, and what it means for human sexuality and human identities. And the book wasn't out there. So I had that moment of like, oh no, I mean, it means I have to write the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> Am I being called right now? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like there's a hole in the world and I guess I'm stuck now. I have to write it and write a book to fill it. And so I spent my 2020 researching the, all the various articles that have come out. And there's, you know, Nature just did a study two years ago of like, the field, the state of the field around this issue and found that 1,500 different animal species have uh, significant same-sex sexual behaviors in the wild and it's just ticking upwards from there and this is insects all the way up through more advanced creatures like uh like primates and apes and of course humans so i did a deep dive into the material and then the struggle was not finding enough to write about but paring it down so i focused on 10 different animal species that each help us unpack 
something about the the human sexuality as well. So, you know, we look at the use the bonobos to look at the ways in which um, bisexuality operates in the animal world, and then with bottlenose dolphins, we look more at the sort of the male unions that they have, and also intersex animals like deer and sex changing animals like fish. There was a there's a, a deep dive into the wild diversity of the natural ways that animals express who they are, both through who they have sex with and and also changing sex and having non-binary sexualities. That is so interesting. And that is such an area of animal life that, well, surprisingly is kind of just uh, not on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, like reading some of these things in your book and seeing how how prevalent like same-sex unions are, or you talk about like penguins, and I think it was like over 20% of like penguin couples that are same-sex couples. And uh, I was like, wow, that's... The- that's a lot. Why? Why do we just not even talk about this? Why do we have entire documentaries like about penguins that just sort of kind of like don't really go into this? The majority of animals are sexually monomorphic, which means males and females look the same to humans. Yeah, no idea. A penguin's it's a really penguin. hard to tell them apart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, like that documentary, March of the Penguins, which was such a hit, and especially around this idea of like this noble family like as a like the nuclear family right the two penguins raising a chick through these extreme adversity just to have keep the family safe a third of those partnerships that we were looking at were most likely same sex based on the based on the data Um, but of course march of the penguins didn't include that information or maybe even the researchers didn't know about it As you kind of point out in this book, and I always learned in my evolutionary psychology classes, it's all about passing your genes on to the next generation. And so any behaviors that don't help with that, our evolution doesn't like those. That doesn't seem to be the case here with 1500 species. What is going on with that? Or why does there seem to be sort of like this disconnect, this behavior doesn't make sense? Where might it come from? Or where might we sort of like the classic narrative of passing on the genes is maybe like limited or not telling us everything. Yeah, well, it's different according to the animal species. There's no one explanation that goes across the board. But one thing that we've been doing is underestimating the amount that animals will cheat. So like even Uh... monogamous couples like penguins that come year after year to raise a chick together are having sex on the side um, all the time. And birds are... 90% of bird species are socially monogamous, meaning they choose a partner and stay with that partner for life. But only 25% are genetically monogamous, meaning that their offspring are actually that partner's DNA. So there's a lot of bird canoodling. And when you factor that in, all of a sudden there is very little evolutionary cost to having a partner who is of the same sex. Because if it's the right partner and they're doing the best job helping to raise your chicks, that's the important quality. And then if it's two females, they can get uh, inseminated outside of the union. And if it's two males, males are known to like steal eggs from other birds within that population and raise them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just last year in the Dutch zoo, there was, um, it sounded like it was ripped from TMZ. There was a a gay couple of penguins, Ah, ah. gay in quotes, but they stole an egg from a lesbian couple next door and then raised it. Um, so it was very scandalous. Like <laughs> they're in big, in big trouble. That's one thing, like the monogamy thing that these animals are basically bisexual. It's not like they are just settling down with someone of the same sex. They are also having offspring, passing it on. Still, like, why is it so prevalent? And the answer is, you know, that it's, there's 
a huge benefit to sexual activity in the release of oxytocin, which is this hormone that the brain releases in physical contact. And sex is the most intense form of physical contact you can have, right? So by allowing, so take bonobos, which are our closest animal relatives, the bonobo apes, they will have a very promiscuous society. Females will have sex with males, they will get pregnant, they will have offspring, but they'll also have sex with females actually more frequently than they have sex with males. And by having sexual interactions, the two females release oxytocin together, ah. which bonds them. It makes them an alliance and a union and really loyal to each other. The same way it does, you know, like remember in high school, like the first time you had a makeout session, you were like, I'm going to spend my life with this part person. And I have yeah, to yeah. text them all the time. And <laughs> it, um, it's the same feeling. That's oxytocin. You're not, you haven't gone crazy. You just have oxytocin flooding your brain. And so the bonobos establish their partnerships and alliances, and they have significant ones, the females with other females, because of this frequent female-female sexual activity. That holds true, like everything from ants all the way through primates release oxytocin during physical contact. So same-sex sexual behavior is a way, another avenue for it and a way to get a social advantage and to do better and outcompete your neighbors if you have more allies. And that's one of the primary ways animals do it is through sexual activity. It's interesting thinking to me about how we have these narratives that we kind of like impose on everyone else and um, that we're imposing this really like heteronormative narrative on animals and how they're, oh, yes, like these nice um, monogamous couples like raising some chicks together and that there's like actually kind of a, a lot more going on that we're ignoring. It's kind of that children's Bibles have that picture of Noah's Ark where it's all these animals, you know, just hanging out on the Ark. And it's like a boy and a girl elephant. And the girl elephant has a pink bow. The male and the female. Yeah. Right. Right, exactly. Like that's the way it's meant to be. And that, you know, you would, as humans, we also end up with that assumption too, right? So I remember in middle school, the big dialogue around homosexuality was like, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Uh, um, and that be like, because it rhymed, that had to be true. Like an 11 year old logic. Wow. That sounds, that just sounds true. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Like that's a really good set of words. And like this rolls <laughs> off the tongue. So it must be right. Um, and that just accords with this Noah's Ark version too. Right. So the same, the same way we think about the animal world also reflect the, um, the limitations we put on other human beings too. It's funny because then it's like how we buy into these things that we don't really know that much about, but then it changes the way we think about ourselves or limits the way we think about ourselves. And if we have this idea that our desires and impulses are not natural or like going against the natural way of things, then that's hard. <laughs> that doesn't feel good. It may generates all kinds of like, I guess, shame or guilt or something like that that's unnecessary because if we just learned a little more and went a little deeper we'd see this is actually there's like such diversity of sexual behavior all across the animal kingdom like you're not weird <laughs> like um, i think that's really an important uh, aspect of your book i've been thinking about that lately with the movement to censor or remove lgbtq books from school libraries and from classrooms mm. and there's an underlying assumption to that and it's it's a reasonable assumption if you have a set of values that lead to it but and the assumption is that if you wall it out, like if you limit exposure to LGBTQ characters, then young people won't be struck by the idea that, oh, maybe I should be a lesbian or maybe yeah, I should. Let's not even put the idea in their head. Let's just yeah, right. Like, let's go back to that stage when no one even had this concept and we all just were normal, quote unquote, right? I understand the logic. It just doesn't hold because it assumes that 
there is something unnatural around these behaviors and that they don't exist in the wild and, and in the rest of the animal kingdom. But when you know, like this research shows, um, that it is there's a wide range of sexual expression within the animal world, you realize that you can't wall it out. It is actually inherent and inborn in all animal populations, including human ones. So it's kind of like the the call is coming from inside the house. You know, <laughs> like it's not yeah, it's not right. like a book that can infect someone with this idea. Like it is part of our genetic heritage and and what we got from all the animals that we co-evolved with. Something that I hear people talking about is like that there's so much more words that we have now. It seems so much more common uh, for people to be going by different pronouns and like um, really like having different sexual identities and gender identities. I wonder like how to what extent like teenagers today are fluent in this like whole other language that it feels like uh, people didn't speak 20 years ago really that much. And it's like, well, these words existed, but they weren't that like mainstream or something like that. And to a certain extent, it does feel like now that we sort of have like a language to describe a lot of things, people are saying like, wow, actually, actually, that's me. It's kind of empowers people to like understand themselves more deeply or, or express themselves in a way that feels more authentic. And what do you think about that? Or is that like a I agree. I, I think I'm not thinking about the parents and teens who are listening to your podcast, that there's a way in which I'm 43. And now the new terms that are coming out, even five years ago, I incorporated these terms much more easily in my, the way I'm thinking. But now, you know, like someone is demisexual and I have to take a moment like, okay, walk me yeah. through. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, there's so much out there that it, it's hard to keep up with. Um, and it's easy to turn to sort of an eye rolly state, right? When you hear about some new identity and it's like, totally. okay, isn't there enough? Like this acronym is so, so huge already. Right, right. But the power it gives a young person is really big. And I think they recognize that. And that if you find the word and the term that expresses you most clearly, you can very quickly establish with a peer, a new friend, someone you meet in a coffee shop, someone who's on the car ride or the field trip or whatever, by saying that set of terms, you have a shorthand within a few seconds to sort of get to the heart of the way you exist in the world. Whereas with a smaller set of terms, we actually can't express ourselves nearly as well. It takes longer for someone to really figure out who you are. It's just a great tool and a resource. So I always try to be open to it. And I'm always grateful when people are tolerant and understand that it's from a place of love because I screw up the terms all the time, right? I'll use the wrong pronouns for someone. I'll, I'll use the wrong term for the, what their sexuality is. Yeah. And I'm always grateful when someone recognizes, appreciates the effort and doesn't punish you for not getting the exact terminology correct. Like we're all working together here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really matters that you're trying. People, people understand it's a lot. In Queer Ducks, I talked to six different young scientists who are doing work in this field and yeah. tried to, you know, I'm, I'm cisgender, meaning like people see me as male and I identify as male and just they, they match. But okay. when I talk to these different researchers, you know, some of them are non-binary or trans and I wanted to make sure to get their voices in there because, um, you know, I don't live that identity, so I don't know all the complexity of it. Yeah. But one of the researchers I talked to is a trans man who is still in a, on a journey around his gender and, and figuring out how to express who he is. And he told a really moving story about how it's so difficult with humans to navigate identity and like to identify who he is. And he sees people misidentifying him and it's just a source of worry and stress. And then he just loves the idea of getting back into the field. Like, so he spends a week observing bighorn sheep or moose and is just there in the mud, like mud up to his ankles, just looking through binoculars at these sheep. And the sheep 
don't care what his gender expression is, right? Are not going to misgender him, not going to shame him for the way that he expresses his gender. It's just a being with other natural beings, and it's a source of great comfort and solace. And I think the natural world can offer us a lot of a feeling of like sort of radical acceptance, you know, that the animal is never going to judge you or shame you for who you are. And we can kind of take take a note from that, that it's kind of how we should treat other humans too. We talk about bonobos and this kind of bonding aspect of their sexual behavior that happens, especially among female-female pairs. You covered 10 different animals with really different, interesting sexual activity. What else is something in there that you think is really interesting? Well, the bottlenose dolphins are sort of the male story comparison to the Uh, the So male bottlenose dolphins are the only lasting uh, relationship in dolphin societies between males, and they they will partner for life and have very, very frequent sexual activity, 2.4 times an hour. Um, So these males are (laughs) getting the oxytocin (laughs) rush all the time. Um, And it's amazing they still have time to like catch fish and do everything else. No wonder they Um, seem so happy. You know, they're always frolicking. (laughs) We see dolphins are like surfing on waves and they're like playing with each other and like ah right i see i see what's going on here and dolphin males and females only spend a week or two together enough time for her to get pregnant and then she goes off alone to raise her calf Uh the males will partner up and they spend their lives together traveling the ocean so it's this they have offspring their they their dna continues along but they have this alliance and then they'll join up with other males who are also bonded sexually and then they dominate the males who have a less tight of a bond. Um, and so it's interesting to see how it kind of plays out within their within their world. For me, the most complicated one was looking at shorebirds. Um, so okay. albatross, gulls, and terns, um, there's a significant percentage of their nests are female-female. So in albatrosses, it's upwards of a third of their nests in that way. And these females, if anyone is listening, you can just Google albatross courtship. It's really, really endearing. So males and females will do this, and the females do this when they're courting. But they clack each other's beak. They do a sort of a dab move where they put their wing up and they put their head under their wing. And <laughs> they get the steps right, and they they know that they are vibing together and they're going to be good life partners. They they bond for life. Like they'll come back, they'll spend the year apart, and then they'll come back every spring to raise chicks together. For a third of them, it's two females doing this. And they don't actually, they do all the courtship that male-female couples do, but they don't actually have sex. They just bond together and they have sex outside of that union briefly with a male to get fertilized, and then they raise their chicks. And so it kind of raises the question of like, how do we define sexuality, right? Like, Mm. these are a pair of birds that are raising chicks together, spending their lives together, of a committed union only with each other, but don't have sex. And, you know, I don't think gay and lesbian are really appropriate terms for animals anyway, but would you consider this same-sex sexual behavior? Like, they're not having sex. Like, what does make someone homosexual or not? So it actually really raised a lot of questions, you know, and does sexuality require sex? And uh, a lot of my middle-aged married friends were like, I've been wondering this question for a long time. (laughs) 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 I I don't know. I can... Oh, let me ask my husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who we sleep in separate bedrooms and uh, right, right. Never. It's a long history of this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That is so interesting. It's funny, like how much um, animals almost feels like empowering in a way, or <laughs> like it just yeah, it feels like so validating for like all the different ways that humans express themselves sexually, and uh, it's just really it's really cool in that way. 
I, I think about it with, you know, the book is most of my readers are adults, but I, it's also really aimed at a teen audience. And I think about teenagers feeling alone in the way that they're feeling, right? That that they are isolated by it, that it makes them unnatural or something wrong. And um, the same kind of thing is the way we thought about our species, that we are the only animals with this, you know, LGBTQ identities. Um, and we're not, we're not alone in the natural world. We're part of it. Just like a young person who is having these feelings is not alone either. Um, you just have to look and have the right information and they'll understand that. A lot of this stuff would be just like so cool to have conversations about teenagers. Like reading this book um, the last few days, I've been having conversations about this with people like, dude, did you know, let me tell you about dolphins. And everyone is fascinated that I talk to. I think this could like just create some really interesting conversations in your home that then also sort of just naturally, uh, it's like metaphors. And I like how it's like so much easier, like, you know, talk about a friend who's going through something or like struggling with something or wondering something that is to talk about yourself. And like, I think, wow, it's even more smooth to talk about animals because that feels like even one more thing removed that also just lets us like think more about ourselves and about each other in sort of like a, a less threatening way. And so when I was a young person in the closet and it took me years to come out to my family and friends and I was just, I had like antenna up for any sign that someone was open to the idea gayness or yeah. bisexuality or anything like just like listening to like a sign that they were okay with it, that they were willing to talk about it. And I think sometimes, you know, exactly as you said, like if you talk about it in dolphins or in Japanese macaque monkeys, it's a sign that the conversation's on the table. Like this topic is on the table. Yeah. Like the teenager would not have the feeling of like, I'm personally implicated. Like we're actually, we're talking about like gay people. Are you gay? You know, instead it's like, Oh, you know, some penguins are gay. And isn't that interesting? And like, it's just a sign, just like a, a flag put up there that this is okay to talk, okay to talk about this and an okay thing to be without someone feeling put on the spot if they're not ready to open up. Yeah. Because I know, like, with teenagers, I used to be a one-on-one -on -one SAT tutor, and so I worked with teens all the time. Ah, okay. They are closed off unless they are ready to crack open, and it's very hard to get someone who's unwilling to speak about something to start if they're a teenager. <laughs> so yeah. uh, any, any tool in the arsenal is helpful, I think. We're here today with Elliot Schrafer talking about teenage sexual behavior and looking at all kinds of sexual activity all across the animal kingdom. And we are not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. In Clownfish, you have, like in Finding Nemo, a female in charge and then all these males beneath her. If she dies, whichever male is at the top of the male hierarchy will turn female within an hour or two and become the group's female. Queer is a really, really old word. They used to call, you know, witches queer, right? Centuries ago. So it's been in English for a very long time. Up until the 1990s, it was always used pejoratively, right? Like, especially in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that queer, you know, that would be, it would be a really negative way of talking about someone. In the 90s, there was a sort of a movement afoot to reclaim the word, to kind of love away the hurtfulness of it. And that's when, you know, disciplines like queer theory and queer history were born. And it was taking back the word and, and reclaiming it. One other insect chapter in there, and it's the fruit flies. And I think that actually might be interesting to people who are listening who are in families, because it's a way of approaching sort of the nature versus nurture question around Ooh. 
does it come from genes or does it come from the culture? What are the sources? And when someone wants to do research on genes, they always turn to fruit flies because they have a really simple genome. When they want to look at sexuality and see like, is there a gay gene? The first place scientists turn were fruit flies. In the 90s, the scientists published a, out of a lab that they had found the gay gene, that they had turned fruit flies gay. And so it was, there's video of it. It's really kind of fascinating. They'd have these fruit flies in a petri dish and it is all male fruit flies and they are all sort of in a conga line of, just having sex just in a line all around this petri dish. <laughs> People have tried again. They tried it with humans to identify if there's a gay gene in humans. And the gold standard is twin studies, where if you have identical twins that are separated at birth for whatever reason, raised in different homes, it's a great way of figuring out is sexuality genetic or cultural? Because if they're both gay, even though they were raised thousands of miles apart, it's a good sign that it was somewhere in their genes, right? But if they're not, then it's a good sign that it's the culture that one environment produced someone who was gay and one provide, produced someone who was straight. Okay, yeah. So when we look at all those studies put together and figure out how much of a correlation there is, it's just sort of genetic. It's like 50 to 60% of sexuality is in your DNA, and the rest is comes from your environment, your culture, and how you grow up. So I find that actually the most heartening, because it just means there is an undeniable truth that in the, the genes do contribute. So there is, it's not just a choice that people are making. But if it were just genetic, you could test for it, you could do screenings uh, in utero to find out if your kid was going to be gay or lesbian or bisexual or anything. And that adds a whole host of really kind of horrific um, outcomes potentially. So I think that mix is actually kind of what we all should be hoping for anyway. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.